Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. I am one of your hosts, Scotty Milder. I am Amelia Amporo. I'm your other host. And uh, yeah, we're back for more. I'm going dark this week. I think you're maybe not so much. But... I am not. I am the fresh sorbet course to cleanse the palate <laughs> after your My, dark uh, and heavy. Right. <laughs> um, but before we get going, do we do we need to talk about yellow jackets at all? I mean, you and I have talked about yellow jackets. Look to our people. I mean, again, if you're not watching Yellow Jackets, like I don't, I don't know how else we can help you. Um, (laughs) You're missing out. There's, there's actually like, you know, remember I was like, I'm getting really excited for March because there's like all this great TV that's coming out, and there is like Daisy Jones and the Six came out, and I Mm. watched all of that. Perry Mason is back, um, Mm. which if you aren't watching Perry Mason, you really should be watching Perry Mason too because like I don't know that the ratings are that good. I know. I need. I need to get caught up with it i've been i mean for me it's just like mm. baseball baseball all the time right now but i need to get back to perry yes. mason's definitely on the list it's so good ted lasso is back and of course yellow everyone's jackets. favorite years and mine yellow jackets is back yeah. and it is dark <laughs> it is yeah. dark this season yeah. i mean there definitely was some chatter amongst the critics i don't know you look at like the reddit message boards more than i, I do, do. I do. <laughs> but like there was definitely after the first season a lot of people were like i I mean they're not going to be able to sustain this for like another season they're they're definitely it's gonna like start getting boring or they're gonna start pulling their punches or blah 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 no 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 not I, at all yellow and yellow jacket said hold my beer to yeah, that exactly yeah, yeah I mean, they were you don't even know what's coming yet i mean there are at least three times an episode where because scotty and i watch them together where you and i just immediately like where something happens on the show and you immediately you and i immediately just like like yeah. at each other right, <laughs> right. like oh and often enough we have to like pause it rewind it watch it again <laughs> yes discuss have you know uh right. a committee meeting about what we just saw yeah i mean they're pacing out the show so far you know mm-hmm. who knows but so far i think they're pacing out the show really well um yeah, yeah but it's and- it, it gets dark and they're really, I think they're tying the past and the present day timelines together really well. I think uh-huh. so too, even though a bunch of like wah-wahs or like, I could, ju- I wish it was just a show about the girls in the wilderness. Yeah, like, I don't I even want to deal with the adults. And I'm like, there's just like no credibility to that for me because then you would be without Juliette Lewis, Christina Ricci, Melanie Linsky, Tawny Cypress. I mean, yes. And I think it's, I think it's doing a really good job of building tension, which you talk about so much right to see you know two and a half decades in the future like the aftermath Mm -hmm. of whatever happens in the woods like it's just like i feel like we're watching that stopwatch on that bomb just like right and you're saying that like things are starting to 
come together in terms of like character dynamics and there's definitely things that they set up in season one where you're like oh i think i know who this character is and blah 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 mm-hmm. and then smartly they get to season two and they're like uh uh uh, uh just not wait. so fast not mm-hmm. so fast yeah like i've never once felt like like the problem with the show like lost which we've talked about is i definitely got to the point where I either felt like one step ahead of the show where it was mm-hmm. just like i kind of know where this is going or when it didn't go where i thought it was going it was just like arbitrary or they would just be like they would lead you for an entire season down yeah. a path of like what is this and what does it mean and then just release Drop the thread it. yeah right. and it was like well what about the fucking polar bears like what is that what was <laughs> I mean, that about what was the fucking smoke monster they literally said in one of the interviews around the third season where, where they were like guys the numbers don't mean anything like who cares about the numbers and it's like you spent two seasons setting Showing up the numbers the numbers everywhere <laughs> right. everywhere it was the fucking flight number and it was the fucking lotter num- lottery numbers and it was the combination and it was blah 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 I, sorry i guess spoilers if you haven't watched <laughs> you were if you were waiting to watch lost um, right and I think at that point, I was like, well, now I feel like you're purposefully, not even purposefully misleading me. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now I just feel like you're fucking with me. Well, and it, it's you're there's fucking not going to be any payoff because you didn't like come up with a plan. And like, so now you're just like throwing that. shit at us to kind of fool us into thinking that it's going to lead somewhere. And yeah. like with Yellow Jackets, I've never one time felt like I was ahead of the show. No, like, no. Every time I think, and I mean, we talk about this every week after the show. It's like, yes. every time we think we figure something out, it's like, but, but wait, but what about? Yeah. And then yeah. in like two episodes, you're like, oh, well, I oh, guess no, I was, guess not. Right. I can eat, I can eat shit about that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it is, it is funny. Like, like I said, you spend more time in the Reddit group than I do. Yes. But it is funny seeing, it's just to the point where people are like just throwing in the craziest theory that they can, because it's like, I don't know, it might be, <laughs> it might be right. Yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting thing too, right? To sort of see this. um, And I have it to a certain extent, right? Of like, what is going on in this show? And like, oh, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. But it is, it's very interesting to me to see and I know it happens with a lot of shows, but to see how many people are like, I want to crack this case. Mm-hmm. I want to solve this puzzle before the show solves it right. for whatever reason. And people, yeah, people have a lot of ideas about yeah. people. And, they, and they're and they very <laughs> like, and they state them very strongly. <laughs> very strongly. It's also funny to see the people who are just now finding the show. So as we're, what, three episodes into season three, two? Yeah, three into people two. People are coming back. People who've just caught up the show are like, guys, like... <laughs> Call me crazy, but what about this theory? And everybody's like, no, the fucking showrunner said that's not going to happen. That's not yeah. who it is. Everybody's debunked this. Like, I know. It's like we started throwing that theory out in like <laughs> episode two of season one, like catch up. <laughs> you know, we're coming hard and fast with the yellow yeah. jacket theory. So you yeah. got to keep up. Or you know what? Go to like some season one subreddit and don't like bring, <laughs> don't bring your nasty season one theories into my space. Um <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. What so is, again, what, if you're if you're not watching Yellow Jackets, I can't help you anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just what are you doing? What are you doing like, with your life? I mean, there, there. Yes, there are other things you can be doing, watching, reading, whatever. What? What are you gonna but go watch? You got to You got to work it. I mean, it's an hour a week. Come on. Yeah. Like even if you're like ca- have stuff to catch up on season one, it's like okay, you can do that in a day. Like just seriously, set some just time aside. 
set like a good, what is it? 10 hours aside, Mm -hmm. binge it, start to finish, call in sick. Yeah, your boss will understand. No, yeah, for sure. Life's (laughs) all about choices. Okay. Okay. Anyway, on that note, going from an incredibly dark show to my incredibly dark story. Mm-hmm. So I do not have a cold open this week. Okay. But we're we're going to talk about the Hartford Circus Fire of 1944. This one's a real bummer. This one's a real bummer. And I'm glad you have some sorbet to cleanse the palate because this one really is kind of a bummer. There's, there's some weird like mysteries around this story though. So it's not just about like death and tragedy, but there is a lot of death and tragedy. So, yeah. okay. Well, my sources this week, Wikipedia, as always, the Circleville Herald from 1950, also a New York Times article from 1950, Uh Historical Society and a book, which I only read parts of, by a writer named Stuart O'Nan uh, called The Circus Fire, A True Story of an American Tragedy. Mm, okay. Um, well, let's uh, rewind a little bit back to ancient Rome. Great. Like, <laughs> Scott, okay, let me say this before we started recording. I had a thing and then that thing got canceled and Scotty was like, do you have any time constraints? And I was like, I mean... No, but, and he was like, right, let's not take four hours. And I was like, let's not take three hours. Like, <laughs> Well, we are going know? back. We are going back to ancient Rome. Just, just so I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that we're, you know, being <laughs> efficient. I mean, basically all I'm going to say is like, I, I was just kind of curious. I was like, when did circuses start? Like what, mm. what was like the source of this? And, and it basically goes back to ancient Roman, like gladiatorial combat. And like, yeah, that's stuff what like I that. And I think even the term circus comes from the Latin term circa, which is uh-huh. where you get circle from, you know. Mm-hmm. So you think about like the three ring circus. So circuses have existed forever, but we're really good. We're going to talk about two specific American companies that merged. First, of course, is the Ringling Brothers Circus, and the second is the Barnum and Bailey. Uh, circus. So up through the mid to late 20th century, traveling circuses were common. There were everything from like the big ones like Ringling Brothers down to like small regional circuses. They would go from town to town, sometimes drawn by like, you know, drawn by oxen and horses Mm -hmm. and stuff. And then later, you know, they would go town to town, city to city by train. One of the biggest ones, of course, was P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. That's too Um, long of a title. Oh, just wait. You got got some more (laughs) are even even they just they really hadn't figured out marketing i don't think yeah i feel like they were like more words right (laughs) um well so that combined with the cooper and bailey circus around 1881 and so it became pt barnum's greatest show on earth and the great london circus singers royal british menagerie and the grand international allied shows united Mm -mm. yeah uh, that's not even the worst one. Eventually, it was just shortened to Barnum and Bailey Circus. <laughs> right. Smartly. So P.T. Barnum, I'm not going to go into the whole history of P.T. Barnum. Like, you know, you, we all know P.T. Barnum. He was uh, an asshole, right? Was, I think he was kind of an asshole. His whole thing was the difference, I think, between the P.T. Barnum's like great traveling museum and menagerie and the Ringling Brothers Circus is the Ringling Brothers were all about the acts, the performers, you know, the lion tamers, the trapeze artists. Right. P.T. Barnum's was more like the freak shows. Yeah. Um, like, like, here's look at a these two-headed weird people. cow and the right. armless woman, and, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of a dick. He ended up dying, though, in 1891. 
1981, and his partner was a guy named James Anthony Bailey from the original Cooper and Bailey Circus. He continued to tour the eastern United States. He eventually took the circus over to Europe from 1897 to 1902. Separately, five brothers, five of seven brothers in Wisconsin, the Ringlings, they came together and started their own kind of small circus in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Like uh, a lot of other circuses at the time, they you know they went from town to town first again with like animal drawn caravans but then eventually uh they just grew and grew where they were able to go by train and they became the chief competition to the barnum and bailey's circus and for a time it was even bigger than barnum and bailey's barnum mm. and bailey really had like a lock on like the east coast whereas the ringling brothers were like you know dominating the midwest and like chicago and you know that kind of area and so like i said they were kind of more focused on performers barnum and bailey were more on like the the freak show the attractions mm. um once barnum and bailey went over to europe the ringling brothers were like yoink and moved on into the eastern the east coast and so when barnum and bailey came back they were like their territory had been taken by the ringling brothers so they were like well fuck this and they went west of the rockies and they started touring like california and stuff so now they're basically covering the whole country right bailey died in 1906 at which point the ringlings moved in and bought up the barnum and bailey show at this point there were only two ringling brothers still surviving there's charles edward ringling and john nicholas ringling and they ran them as two separate shows for a time so there was still the barnum and bailey traveling menagerie whatever and then there was the ringling brothers circus and eventually they were like fuck this like this is just like way too much work so they ended up combining the two shows in 1919 they became the ringling brothers and barnum and bailey combined shows also known as the ringling brothers world's greatest shows and the barnum and bailey's greatest show on earth still not mastering the pith at this point right <laughs> so charles ringling he died in 1926 so john was the last ringling brother he moved the headquarters down to sarasota florida and the circus was doing like great through the 1920s but then the Great Depression happened, really like took a toll on their business. He died in 1936. His nephew, John Ringling North, took over. And then uh, they got a little bit of a relief from FDR during World War II because there were major restrictions on like rail use at the time because this was mm. right during the war. They needed for like, you know, war production, but they actually gave the Ringling Brothers a special dispensation to use the trains to move from city to city. And that kind of like kept the circus alive. It makes sense when you think about it, because they were like, we're at war. We're coming out of the fucking every everybody feels awful about everything. Like, Like, we need at least the circus. We need at least the circus. Like happiness and joy. Let's let's spread that all around the country. Uh, Which, of course, takes us to 1944 and the Hartford Circus Fire. (laughs) Oh, great. Here we go. Okay, buckle up. There is uh, just general content warnings. It's it's a fire. You kind of know what happens to people in a fire yeah so i'm gonna try and avoid like too many of the like the worst details okay um but so at this point the ringley brothers and barnum and bailey show was like the biggest circus that had ever existed most circuses were sort of oriented around the idea of the big top which was a massive canvas tent where all mm-hmm. of the performers would perform and you know if you go to like a standard regional circus it could you know seat a few hundred maybe up to a thousand people right well the ringling brothers tent they had the biggest big top in the country it was 200 feet wide by 450 feet long it could seat 9,000 people around three rings the roof was 48 feet high and the bleachers went almost all the way up to the roof which will be kind of important here in a moment 
Uh-huh. Um, and it was typically would be erected over like freshly mowed grass or unfortunately exposed dirt, which would then be watered down and covered with hay and wood shavings. It's also important to note that the way that big top tents were waterproofed was that they would be coated in kind of a mixture of paraffin wax and gasoline. Yep. Yep. So paraffin is a waxy crystalline substance obtained from distillates of wood, coal, and petroleum, mm-hmm. um, none of which are <laughs> particularly flame, flame, flame retardant. retardant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the Ringling Brothers Big Top, it was actually covered in 1,800 pounds of paraffin wow. along with 6,000 gallons of quote, white gasoline, which was a great waterproofing. Superb. Fantastic. If that had been, if there had been a nasty rainstorm. Yeah. Great oculent. Yeah. Unfortunately, rain on this day was not the problem. Oh, man. So, yeah, inside this massive tent, they had three rings, two stages. It was surrounded by a 25-foot oval track that separated the performers from the spectators. Okay. And there was one big main entrance where everyone would come in. And they had eight smaller exits around. But this is back before, like, things like fire codes were strictly enforced. So they would, of course, like, block the other exits with, like, the animal wagons and things like that. God forbid somebody (laughs) doesn't pay the, like nickel admission right right yeah well i think that yeah that was one part of it is they would block the exits uh i think some of it was convenience because it was like easier to get the animals in and then some of it was they didn't want people yeah who would like didn't pay the nickel admission to be able to get in so of course this leads to july 6 1944 the ringling brothers and barnum bailey circus it was performing in hartford connecticut somewhere between six and eight thousand people were in attendance no um the fire started immediately after the first act and i'll get to it but it's very there's a lot of questions about what started the fire but it was right after the first act it was immediately following the lion performance which meant that there were like big cats in the ring or in the tent at the time it was a small fire on the southwest wall and it was while the flying walindas were starting to perform so just fyi the flying walindas were a german family of old-time circus performers and aerialists daredevil stunt performers they were particularly known for their high wire acts without a safety net Mm -hmm. um all of them escaped the fire and the family still exists and performs to this day so mm-hmm. good on the walindas uh but they were just starting <laughs> so good for them i good guess for those fuckers um so they were just starting their performance when the band leader a guy named merle evans happened to look over and he was the first who seemed to see the fire so he immediately stopped the music and then had the band go into the song the stars and stripes forever which mm-hmm. was code for all the circus performers and circus professionals to know that like something's wrong we need to we need to stop the show basically mm. the band actually continued playing all the way through the fire until a pole fell over and they were forced to quit so it's kind of like the the band on the titanic in a way seriously mm. um so this of course alerted the ringmaster a guy named fred bradna that something was wrong he looked over he saw the fire and he was like okay okay people we're gonna need to like you know leave the tent he was trying to get everyone out in an orderly fashion but at this point because we're talking about canvas covered in paraffin and gasoline it's just like blazing up and this shorted out the power so then no one could hear his microphone but they kept trying to like get you know you know he and the ushers were trying to like keep order get people to like move towards the big main exit but as the flames just took off the crowd of course starts to panic Mm. and they start rushing to try and get out they're trampling each other they did have water jugs stationed 
stationed throughout the tent, but clearly not going to be enough. So ushers were like trying to throw water on this fire. They're pulling down sections of the tent that are in flames, but it's just like it's it's pissing on a forest fire basically yeah like it was there was nothing to be done at this point okay question about this like coated thing and maybe maybe you don't know but with this coating on the canvas tent even if you were to throw water on it would the water extinguish the flames i actually did try to find that out and it wasn't super clear i didn't find a lot of information on that because i wonder if it'd be like throwing water on a grease fire the thing is i mean it's or a gas fire it's essentially a gas fire um, yeah. So I think, yeah, it wasn't the most effective <sighs> way of ex- extinguishing the fire. Not only that, the paraffin essentially mm-hmm. became globs of raining napalm. Mm-mm. They were just falling Ugh. on the crowd. So you have this crowd of 9,000 people, or, or I think six to 8,000 people in there. You had a bunch of lions in there. Luckily, the lions, all the cats got out. The trainers were right there. They had shoots from the like performance cages out to like caravan cages, and they just like got the cats out. So no cats were, uh, there were like minor burns. Like the cats suffered some minor injuries, but none of them died, and also none of them got loose and like added to the carnage which was good okay small (laughs) Um, miracles but of course now we're in like full panic i mean the entire tent is in flames it's raining paraffin burning globs of paraffin on people the spectators had basically given up on trying to get through all these blocked entrances and they were like running around in circles trying to find like their loved ones so people weren't even trying to get out at this point. Um, other people just sort of sat in their seats and waited because they're like, oh, they'll get the fire out eventually. And then, of course, it's too late. So here's a quote from one of the survivors. It's it's uh, someone named Maureen Kirkian. She was 11 years old at the time. She says, quote, I remember somebody yelling and seeing a big ball of fire near the top of the tent. And this ball of fire just got bigger and bigger and bigger. By that time, everybody was panicking. The exit was blocked with the cages that the animals were brought in and out with. And there was a man taking kids and flinging them up and over that cage to get them out. I was sitting up in the bleachers and jumped down. I was three quarters of the way up. You jumped down and it was all straw underneath. There was a young man, a kid, and he had a pocket knife. And he slit the tent, took my arm, and pulled me out. So she's being pulled out. There was another little girl behind her. And she, like, reached back, grabbed this other little girl, and pulled the other girl out with her. Um, so a couple of other of survivors. There was a woman named Frida Pushnik. She's one of the performers. She was known as the armless and legless wonder. So, of course did not have arms or legs uh, oh, which is God. not what you want in a fire um but one of the minstrel show performers actually oh yeah and by the way circuses had minstrel shows at the time of, of uh, course they of did. course they did but one of the minstrel show performers ran up onto the stage where she was grabbed her she was like sitting i think in a wheelchair <sighs> grabbed her chair and just like held it over his head and ran out of the tent Ugh. with her and she survived she was fine she she continued to perform in circuses until 1955 another survivor was again she was a little girl at the time she was seven her name was judith shapiro cohen someone carried her up to the top of the bleachers and told her to jump off now remember i said the bleachers went almost to the roof yeah and we're talking like 50 feet in the air yeah um, so she was too scared to jump. Um, and someone was just like, fucking move and shoved her. And she ended up landing on a chair, but she survived. 
yet another i know yeah i mean it's pretty awful Ah. unfortunately like a lot of people were trying to escape that way they were going up jumping off the bleachers and it said that they that that actually ended up kind of killing more people than it saved because i mean they're jumping from 50 feet onto like hard ground straw chairs whatever yeah another survivor was the actor charles nelson riley who later was known for the life of riley he was 13 at the time he said later in an interview much later that after like over the years he would rarely actually go to the theater because the sounds of the audience would trigger his memories of being Uh, yeah i mean imagine like and and yet you go on to be a performer like that's pretty impressive so the entire fire took about eight minutes from the start of the fire for the tent to collapse so hundreds of people were trapped under the collapsed tent. One of the most famous images from the fire was taken by an audience member named Ralph Emerson. Uh, the picture is of someone named Emmett Kelly, who was a very famous circus clown. The picture is of the kind of, you see the like the smoldering fire behind him as he's running by in his full clown makeup with like a single jug of water mm. to try and put it out. He, and he was, and Emmett Kelly was very famous. Uh, you know, he was like the main star clown of the Ringling brothers circus which was the biggest circus in the country he was a former broadway and hollywood star who was still working at the circus he said here's his quote he said as i was putting the finishing touches on my face i could hear the band playing the waltz music and that was my cue to amble into the center ring at that instant someone ran past the dressing tent yelling fire i was trying to run in my big flapping shoes and suddenly realized that i was carrying a bucket of wash water i had grabbed when i left the dressing tent so that's the bucket he's holding in the wow. He saw uh, some flames over by one of the large generator wagons, which is obviously not something you want to catch on fire. Yeah. Because um, that could just explode. So he's trying to dump water onto the flames when he says, quote, one of the Caterpillar tractors came rumbling along to get that wagon to hook on and pull it away from the crowd. It was almost on top of me before I realized what was happening. And as it swung around, it did not miss running over me by more than an inch. So, again, I don't want to go too into the worst details, but a lot of the victims burned to death. Mm. Many others died of smoke inhalation and even more were trampled by the crowd. There are different numbers for how many people died, uh, usually said to be either 167, 168, or 169 people. Uh, The discrepancy comes from the fact that not all of the bodies were intact, so they were just kind of trying to put, like, body parts together to get a Mm -hmm. head count. Yeah, yeah. And most adult, this was during the war, obviously, this is 1944. So most adults at the time were actually at work in war production factories. So mm-hmm. a lot of the people there were mothers with like groups of young children. So 68 of the dead were 15 or younger. Uh-huh. It's also possible that the death toll is quite a bit higher because small towns didn't keep very good residency records. Mm-hmm. So people really didn't know who was there. And then the circuit the day before, people from the circus had been going around town handing out free tickets. Among the people who were taking free tickets were like drifters who were moving to town. So it's like there could have been a bunch of people there who like wouldn't have been reported missing. Right. It did It did appear that most of the dead were found kind of piled up near the blocked exits, which oh, is just, man. it's the story you hear about all of these fires. It's always. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same thing with the Iroquois theater right. fire that it was like, you know, just people at the exits. Just stuck. right. Yeah, exactly. Um, aside from all the deaths, more than 700 people were treated for injuries. Some of them severe, some minor, but there were actually probably a lot more injuries because a lot of people could just kind of wandered home in shock and didn't go to the hospital. 
a lot of the injuries came from people jumping off the tops of the bleachers, like yeah. I said. Okay, so that's the story of the fire. Okay. <clears throat> we can leave aside, like, the worst details for now. Okay. Let's go into the question of what caused the fire. Oh, yeah. Whether it was possibly arson. Okay. So the first theory was, and, and a lot of people still believe this theory, um, is that it was just, like, someone flicked a cigarette carelessly. And, of course, it's, like, a ground covered in hay and, like, wood shavings. Yeah. Going to catch on fire. But pretty quickly, people started being like, but what What? What if it was arson? Mm-hmm. Well, about six years later, a guy named Robert Dale Seggy, and it's spelled S-E-G-E-E, he had been working for the, the circus at the time as a roustabout. A roustabout was basically just like a general laborer. Like, okay. You know, the, the technical definition is like a worker with broad-based, non-specific skills. And you hear about, you read about roustabouts in like oil fields and things like that. So well, just kind of does what needs to get done. Just does what needs to get done. And he was a 14-year-old who was working as a roustabout during the time of the Hartford fire. Or at least this okay. is what he claimed later. But six years later, he had moved to Circleville, Ohio, and he was being investigated for other unrelated arson charges. And as they were interrogating him, interviewing him, however you want to say it, there's a lot of questions about these interrogations. Okay. Um, and of course, this is before like anything was like videotaped or right. Know, so. But he confessed to a bunch of fires, including the Hartford. Uh, circus fire Hmm. so there's an article from the circleville herald from 1950 it's written by the managing editor guy named gunner musselman it's called circus fire connection is seen man 21 admits to several blazes and this is from the article says a 21 year old man who received messages from a quote flaming red horseman telling him to commit arson was being questioned in columbus friday about many fires including the disastrous hartford connecticut circus blaze which claimed 107 lives in july 1944 I don't know where that 107 number comes from, but maybe, uh, who knows. And then it says, the man is Robert Seggy, 21, recently of Columbus. The flaming red horseman, an identification mark of the National Board of Fire Underwriters, labeled the, quote, fifth horseman, is known to Seggy's mind as the, quote, red Indian. Although not conclusively linked to the Hartford fire, Seggy reportedly has admitted being with the circus at the time. So he did sign a statement admitting to the fire, as well as a bunch of others. And then he also claimed that he committed several murders as a young man. Okay, wait, sorry. What mm-hmm. the fuck is the Red Horseman? Is it like a so, vision? Is it What is it? Basically, yeah. So... I was trying to figure out what this like National Board of Fire Underwriters is, but yeah, they, what... I think, had a logo that showed a flaming red horseman. And it sounds like this Robert Seggy had some serious mental health issues. Okay. And he had decided that this red horseman was a, quote, red Indian that was telling him to set fires. So we've got a little bit of like a son of Sam. Kind of. Well, and so, we'll, so and we'll get to it. that because there's a lot of questions about the veracity of all this. So okay, yeah, sure. this is from a New York Times article from the same year. It says, like I said, he had confessed to the Hartford fire, a bunch of other fires and committing several just murders. So from the New York Times article says, quote, Fire Marshal Harry J. Callen said that Seggy had signed a statement admitting to the circus fire four slangs, quote, by his own hand in more than a score of major fires in Ohio, New Hampshire, and Maine. The fire marshal said Seggy admitted beating to death nine-year-old Barbara Driscoll of Portsmouth, New Hampshire on a riverbank on September 5th, 1938. 
Segi's long statement, obtained after days of questioning, told a weird story of a nightmare Indian riding a flaming horse. Prosecutor Guy B. Klein of neighboring Pickaway County recited the story this way, quote, The Indian appeared to Segi at night, urging him to set fires. Segi's mind then went blank. When his mind cleared, the fire had been set. So, and he this... admitted to killing, sorry, and he yeah. admitted to killing a girl in 1938. Mm-hmm. And he, he would have been he was, eight. He would have been like, yeah, like eight years old. Yeah. Okay. He also confessed to setting a warehouse fire in Portland, Maine, to okay. killing a 13 or 14 year old boy in Cape Cottage, Maine, and to killing a boy in Japan in 1949 while he was serving in the Army of Occupation. He also okay. made a series of hand-drawn images supposedly depicting the murders. These were printed in Life magazine in July of 1950. So, I guess I'm going to ask you, do you believe it? I, I I have no I have no idea. You know what I it, mean? Like it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. And you know like, what I mean? I mean, it's possible yes that he had these mental health issues. Mhm. I mean, it's even possible that he did set some fires, but I mean, we're talking days of questioning with police who had a let's say a vested interest in solving. Yeah, I think crimes. that's a, I think that's the thing is that like we didn't have that, things like Miranda warnings back then. Right. I think there is just as much of a chance that that confession is false as it is true. Like, yeah. And that's, I think, where people have kind of come down to. It should be said. So, Segi, he was convicted in Ohio of unrelated arson charges in November of that year. I was not able to read anywhere how long he served. He was never okay. convicted for the Hartford fire. Authorities in Hartford never believed it. Like, they were like, no, like, we can't even prove he was actually in Connecticut. He yeah. claims he was harassed about with the circus but who knows if that's true and the authorities in ohio would not let the hartford authorities interview him which is to me sus. Very yeah. Sus. yeah yeah and it should be said that later he did recant the confession he continued to deny it as late as 1994 in an wow. interview and then he wow. died in 1997 wow so okay. i mean i think most historians kind of call bullshit on that confession okay there's still people who believe it was arson but the general sense is if it was arson the culprit was never caught I'm going to I'm gonna say that I read a lot about this Robert Seggy stuff. And there's more details, but it's like a lot of it isn't all that pertinent. I, I guess where I come down is I think it was a lit cigarette or something mm. like that. And I think that there were these cops in Ohio that were looking to make a case. Yeah. And maybe he did light the Ohio fires, although from what I was reading, even that sounded pretty suspicious. But I really don't believe that he was involved with the Hartford. Okay. Okay, let's get to the biggest mystery. Okay. Of the Hartford Circus Fire. Uh, this is, of course, Little Miss 1565. Oh, okay. I was like, bigger yeah. than how how the fire started? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Let's this go. is this is kind of the enduring mystery. So Little Miss 1565. And again, I, I better give some trigger warnings here. If you have trouble hearing about dead children, you probably... I'm not... Again, I'm going to try and avoid like a lot of really like gory details and stuff. But, yeah. But Little Miss 1565, she was a dead little girl who was found in the remains of the fire. She was blonde. She was wearing a white dress. They believe she was about... Six years old. She was three foot ten inches tall, weighed forty pounds. She had all of her baby teeth except for two central lower incisors. And the name Little Miss fifteen sixty five comes from her designated number from the Hartford morgue. Okay. Um, so, and it was kind of like a makeshift morgue that they set up to yeah. deal with all these victims. So here's a quote. This is from that sarahwinter.com website. It says, Little Miss 1565 was presumably seen by every family with a missing member following the fire. But as the days wore on, no one claimed her. Uh. Mortuary photographs show a body in shockingly good condition. 
She's not burned beyond recognition, and her features are fairly normal. She looks thin but healthy with long blonde hair, and she was said to have blue eyes, which are large with thick lashes, and the coroner estimated she was about six years old. She died at Hartford Municipal Hospital, and her cause of death was listed as, quote, burns by fire, third and fourth degree. But Winter writes that that may not be correct, that it seems maybe more likely that she actually died of smoke inhalation or suffocation. Mm. Her body was in such condition, most likely, because she was found, again, trigger warning, at the bottom of a pile of other bodies. Uh. Um, And I will, again, and we'll post a trigger warning on social media, but I'm going to post the picture of her. It was a very famous picture. It was I'm looking at her right now. Every newspaper, yeah. It was running every newspaper, major national magazines all around the country because no everyone was trying to identify him. She kind of became the face of the fire. Ugh. Um and like do you wanna kind of describe the picture? Again, you don't need to go into like upset. I'm assuming it's like it's this yeah, one, that's yeah. It. That's it. So it's I mean, she almost looks like she's sleeping. Right. Um, and it's just it's a little girl what I can see in the picture is it's just of her face. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it looks like she's got light colored hair. Her lashes are pretty intense. She's got pretty mm-hmm. intense lashes. Yeah. And yeah, it, I mean, she does. She like, I don't know if what's going on here on the side is burns. Burn or soot or what. But Or yeah. yeah, just like, you know, an old timey photo. But yeah, she just kind of looks like she's sleeping. Yeah. Um, yeah and i yeah and like when you read she's, like she's probably around five or six when you read statements and articles from the time period there's a lot of things like referring to like angelic visage and things like that and yeah. i think she just became the face of the tragedy you know yeah i mean she is you know she's like your poster white child blonde, blonde child yeah. yeah so like i said that photo that you were just looking at that i'm gonna post in social media it was a state police photo uh, they ran it first in like local regional newspapers. And then I think as the story just grew, it started running in like nationwide magazines. Um, mm-hmm. But no relatives ever stepped forward to claim her. So she was buried at Hartford's Northwood Cemetery. Two police investigators, uh, a guy named Sergeant Thomas Barber, and I think his partner, uh, someone named Sergeant Edward Lowe, they spent the rest of their lives trying to identify her. Um, Barber's story in particular is kind of sad. He He apparently was really obsessed with trying to find her because he was a widower with two young children of his own and he had actually been planning to go to the circus that day but they arrived late and by the time they got there the fire had broken out uh yeah so they took fingerprints, footprints, dental charts. They were never able to conclusively match her to anyone. Every year on Christmas, Memorial Day, and July 4th, Barbara and Lowe would go to her grave. They would bring flowers. They did this until they died, which I think was in the 70s. Um, and then after they both passed away, a local flower company in Hartford continued the tradition. Ugh. Yeah. So, like, she was just unidentified. Like, mm-hmm. no, no one ever really had a good idea of who she was. But then in 1991, someone named Rick Davey, who was another art, he was an arson investigator himself. He looked at the evidence and he concluded that she was a little girl named Eleanor Emily Cook of Southampton, Massachusetts. Okay. So Eleanor had attended the circus with her mother, Mildred, and her two brothers, Donald and Edward. Mildred, her mother, was badly burned in the fire. She spent months in recovery. And because of the trauma, she just didn't want to pursue the case of what happened to her daughter. They did find her, her son, I think Edward, also died of the fire and they did identify his body but they never identified eleanor and she didn't want to like she either believed she was one of the bodies that was burned beyond recognition 
Or she told family that she was like, I just prefer to think that like she's out there suffering from amnesia and she's living living happily with another family. But oh, she didn't. God, that's fucking heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. When she was shown a picture of Little Miss fifteen sixty five, she was just like, No, that is not my daughter. It's absolutely not my daughter. And she stuck by that until she died in nineteen ninety seven at the age of ninety one. But this Rick Davey was still convinced that it had to be Eleanor Emily Cook, partly because he had talked to Eleanor's surviving brother, Donald, who was, unlike his mother, he was convinced that this was his sister. Mm. And he actually worked with Rick Davey. I think they wrote a book together about it. So people were like, oh, okay, she's identified. She's been identified. Yeah. And so in 1991, they disinterred her body and reburied her in the family plot alongside her brother, Edward, who, like I said, had also died in the fire. But a lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people really don't believe that this okay. is the case. And there's a lot of like empirical evidence that kind of points to it not being correct. So okay. for one thing, Eleanor's aunt and uncle viewed the body. And they said that it wasn't Eleanor. Okay. Little Miss 1565, she had blonde hair. Eleanor was said to have been a brunette. A writer named Stuart O'Nan, who wrote a book about this, he pointed out that the shapes of the girls' faces were not the same, that their heights mm-hmm. and ages did didn't match. He also said the dental records didn't match. I mean, that's pretty empirical, I think. Yeah. He said he believes that Eleanor was actually probably body 1503, which was one of the bodies that was unrecognizable. Um, But like I said, Donald was convinced. Her brother Donald was convinced that it was her. He contacted authorities in 1955, insisting that it was her. And then later, like I said, he went to this Rick Davey and said, this was my sister. And they wrote a book about the, mm. the entire fire story. I got to say, I don't think it's her. I mm-hmm. think there's too much like empirical evidence to point to mm-hmm. it not being her. Sounds like the family to this day, other than Donald, really, like, even though she's buried in their family plot, they're like, we don't think it's her Mm. in 1981 sergeant lowe's widow actually told the press that barbara and lowe had actually managed to identify her and had contacted her family but that the family didn't want any publicity in 1987 someone no one knows who but some anonymous person left a note on her gravestone saying sarah graham is her name 7638 date of birth six years twin they left other notes indicating that her twin brother and other relatives were also buried in the same cemetery close by Ugh. Like, we we just don't know. We still don't know. Um, Stuart O'Nan said that he thinks the most likely scenario is that another family accidentally claimed Eleanor's body early on in the investigation. She's buried somewhere under another child's name. Yeah. Um, This could all be cleared up with DNA analysis, but that would mean exhuming every single possible candidate body and, like, no one's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's Little Miss 1565. So just a little bit left. I'm almost done. The yes. aftermath of that. I know because this one really is a bummer. a bummer. I'm fascinated by the story, but it's a it's a bummer of a story. Same. In July of 1947, this is just the aftermath of the fire itself. In July of 1947, five officials and employees of the Ringling Brothers Circus were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Ultimately, the circus then started negotiating with the officials in Hartford, agreed to accept full financial responsibility and pay mm-hmm. whatever the city wanted. By 1954, the Ringling Brothers Circus had ultimately paid out $5 million to victims and families. And wow. I think because they agreed to take responsibility, the charges against the officials and employees were dropped. In 2002, the Hartford Circus Fire Memorial Foundation was established. In 2004, this foundation erected a permanent memorial to those killed in the fire. And then May of 2004, a survivor named Dorothy Carvey and her son, it's spelled T-I-G-H-E, I think it's pronounced Ty. 
Um, Spell it one more time. T-I-G-H-E. T-I-G-H-E. No clue. (laughs) I think it's Thai. Okay. Um, We'll just say Thai. But anyway, in May of 2004, a survivor, I think she was a little girl at the time of Mm. the fire. Dorothy Carvey and her son were given free passes to attend a Ringling Brothers show at the XL Center in Hartford. It was her first time going back to the circus since the fire. Uh, I think I would be like... No, thank you. Apparently, a lot of people who survived the fire were like, fuck off. No, we're not ever going to a circus again. Yeah. But she actually did. She went with her son and I think other members of the family. The story was reported in the Hartford Current, which is their paper. I tried to read the article, but it was one of those you click on it and it's like, oops, sorry, this page cannot be found. So mm. the Ringling Brothers continued as a going concern. They toured up through 2017. I mm. think there may still even exist. Um, they're maybe like doing stuff in Vegas or something but their last like traveling tour was in 2017 and on that tour they did perform in hartford connecticut wow so to close it out at the end of his 2001 book on the fire uh stewart onan wrote and the book is called the circus fire a true story of an american tragedy stewart onan wrote about little miss 1565 he says quote to be lost and forgotten to be abandoned is a shared and terrible fear just as our fondest hope as we grow older is that we might leave some part of us behind in the hearts of those we love and in that way we live on. Perhaps in the end we will not be lost. In that respect, she was received the only gift we can give her, a gift we wish desperately for our loved ones, a gift we all want, finally, to be remembered. And Ugh. that's the story of the Hartford Circus Fire and Little Miss 1565. Oof. Yeah, it's a bummer. Is there, I mean, is there any chance that she was with her family and the rest of her family died? Sure. So there was nobody to, to I think ID I, her? I read on like some message boards, people theorizing about that. Mm-hmm. And that seems as likely as anything to me. I don't as know if that's else, ever yeah. been, I don't know if it's confirmed that there were any families where like the entire family was wiped out, but that's mm-hmm. not impossible. Yeah, I th- I think Onan's theory that her family came and accidentally claimed the wrong because it, it sounds like there was just mass confusion afterwards. A lot of the bodies were in bad shape. Yeah. So someone came in, claimed her body without actually seeing or claimed another child's body, thinking it was her. Uh, so there's someone else buried in her grave. So, yeah. Um, I think that's as likely as anything. <sighs> yeah. Well done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Cheer us up. Okay. Um, So I'm going to start with a little bit of a cold open. Okay. So Barbara Millicent Robert, she Mm -hmm. was born on March 9th, 1959. She is the oldest of several children born to George and Margaret Roberts in Willows, Wisconsin. Okay. She has had like, hold on. My Google Docs is like, do you want to do this thing? And I'm like, no, I want to read it, bitch. That's all I want to do. Um. (laughs) Okay. So uh, throughout her incredible life, she has starred in several films. She has had an insane number of books written about her. Okay, She's been in an on-again, off-again relationship with the same man since the 1960s. She has a friend group that spans the globe. She has had over 40 pets, including dogs, cats, horses, a panda, a lion cub, and a zebra. Okay. Um, And she has had a varied professional life as every Everything from a flight attendant to a doctor to an astronaut. Uh, Barbara has had, without a doubt, one of the most extraordinary lives ever. You probably know her by her more commonly used nickname, Barbie. Mm. This is the story of one of the most popular dolls ever. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to talk about her. uh, If... (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> if you don't know, uh, the movie is coming out. Yeah. I'm actually like, I was like ugh, a Barbie movie. And then when I saw the images mm-hmm. from it, like I was like, Margot Robbie looks great. I don't know what's I mean, going on with Ryan Gosling, but the trailer is real funny. <laughs> upon seeing the trailer, I was like, I'm sold. Like I'm, I'm yeah. it feels like it is in the vein of like the Lego movies right? where it is like going along with a lore uh-huh. that is like, it's that is got- like cheeky, but also like respectful. It also like kind of reminded me of like the Brady Bunch movie trailers yes. back in the day, because it was like this lovingly making fun of this iconic thing. Yes. Um, but this, but it also looks like way weirder. So it is, <laughs> I can't super into it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm super into it. Um, okay. Okay. So sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia, several videos, including the history of Barbie, a guided tour by Trixie Mattel, who is a drag queen. I'm going to talk about her a little bit okay. later. She is a doll collector. Mm. So she has tons of videos about Barbie. And in all of them, she talks about the history, the like cultural significance of Barbie. They're actually like really, really fascinating videos. Videos. They're on YouTube. Of course, the Encyclopedia Britannica, an episode of Not Past It podcast, and another YouTube video called You Should Know Ruth Handler. And the yeah. You Should Know videos is by an account that I believe is called 70 Faces. And it is, I hope that it's not some like crazy fucking <laughs> thing but it is dedicated to like talking about like jewish people that you should know about okay yeah so let's dive right in uh let's get into barbie's origins so barbie was created by a woman named ruth handler she was born to polish jewish immigrants in denver colorado in 1916 Mm, she moved to los angeles with her husband elliot handler in 1938 and they started this plastics company right um there was a lot of stuff about like they made plastic plexiglass and lucite furniture and then there was other stuff that was like they only made picture frames and then there was stuff about like all sorts of stuff they Uh made something (laughs) (laughs) out of plastics right and eventually they partnered with harold matt mattson and created mattel and mattel is a portmanteau of matt from mattson and l from elliot okay so they had a bit of a dry spell but they started making plastic toy furniture during world war ii so for like doll houses and stuff like that ruth was a real interesting character. She said, quote, I mean, again, this is, we're talking LA 40s, 50s, Polish, Jewish, first gen. Right. Um, but she, uh, this is a quote of her. She said, I was in a sea of men. There were no others like me. <laughs> While her husband was the creative part of the team, Ruth uh-huh. was the ambition. She apparently cursed like a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And she also said, quote, I loved my children, but I wasn't suited to taking care of a home. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound like, you know, we're going to learn a little bit more about her. It doesn't sound like she was neglectful. I think that she was just like, my ambition is not to be a homemaker. Right. My ambition just, is to do something. With so my she's life. just like a woman like caught maybe in a time period where she's like kind of ahead of her time. You know? Right. I also want to go here and say that being a homemaker is in fact 
a job in and of itself. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Homemakers are an integral part of society and they should be respected and paid and all of that stuff. So I'm just saying kind of felt like that's where she, she had different ambitions than that. Sure. Okay. So Barbie herself has like a two part origin story. The first is that Ruth saw her daughter, Barbara, whom Barbie is named after, playing with paper dolls. Like, and paper dolls were, you know, they're two dimensional dolls that right. you cut out of a magazine and they were always adult women. Okay? okay. This is different from what existed in the world of like girl play up to that point. Most of the toys that existed for girls were baby dolls and uh-huh. they, were there with the purpose of teaching women how to nurture babies. Mm -hmm. So these are all of the baby dolls that needed care, like the ones that would like wet themselves and the ones that you could feed. And it was all about teaching you how to be a mom. Uh There were apparently also a couple of things like the glamour doll, which came with makeup, but it was still very clearly like a girl's face. Right. I mean, I think of like like the porcelain dolls you see of the time. They're always little girls. The image is always, always very much like... Like either a baby or a child. Right. And it's it, like I said, it's all very clear that it's like, go and learn how to be a mom. You know? Right. So these paper dolls looked, like I said, like adult women, and they allowed kids to experiment with adult fashion on adult bodies, but they were two-dimensional. Uh-huh. The second part of Barbie's origin story is at some point, Elliot and Ruth took the family, they traveled to Europe, and Ruth saw a doll that looked like a woman. And Mm. like I said, this is actually pretty weird because up to this point, dolls were babies. Right. So the doll that Ruth saw in Europe was a German doll called Lily. And I I don't know if the brand was Build, it's B-I-L-D, but her name was Lily. And she was this blonde bombshell. If you ever see pictures, and a lot of times they get conflated with like, these are vintage Barbie dolls. They're not. The Lily dolls have super high, like it is a prominent forehead. And it almost looks like they have a little bit of a receding hairline. I'm I'm looking at Yeah, look up. It's B-I-L-D and then Lily is L-I-L-L-I. And you'll see she looks a lot like a... Yeah, I mean, you can... See what I'm talking about with the forehead? (laughs) I was going to say, like, you can definitely see the influence on Barbie, but that is like, that is, I mean, that's an eight head. It's, it is, (laughs) yeah, it's a significant forehead. It's it's Um, like a cross between Barbie and like the aliens from Mars Attack. She's got a, she's got a lot of forehead (laughs) happening. So she was this like blonde bombshell. It was understood that Lily was a sex worker. She was not Mm. actually a toy for girls. She was a gag gift that was sold in like men's shops. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So she was this blonde bombshell working girl who knew what she wanted and was not above using men to get it. Uh, okay. <laughs> that yeah. was how she was described. So um, yes, not for children. <laughs> not for children at all. Men would like tie her to their rear view mirrors in their cars. Uh, okay. Like she was this little like, you know, sex pot kind of thing. Uh-huh. That's what she was made for. But the problem was, is that kids were like, no, I want to play with that doll. Sure. Yeah, of course. And kids, so Ruth was- Kids don't know any different. Well, and I'm going to get into it. So Ruth is like, I think that there's a market for like yeah. an adult 
woman toy. So she buys three of them. Yeah. So she buys three of them. She gives one to her child, Barbara, and she takes two back home to Mattel. Uh Apparently, one of the executives of Mattel was like getting ready to go on a trip to Japan. And Ruth like slid the Lily doll into (laughs) his suitcase with a note that was like, make her. Okay. So the original Barbies were produced in Japan. Again, I'm going to get to this in a little bit. Her clothing, the original Barbie clothing was hand sewn wow. by Japanese workers. Wow. What what time period was what year was this? So we're talking mid to late 50s. Okay. 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 Barbie made her debut on March 9th, 1959 at the International Toy Fair in New York City. That date also became known as Barbie's birthday. Okay. Um, She wore a black and white zebra striped swimsuit and her hair was in this top knot ponytail. Apparently, while the blonde Barbie is the most popular, they Uh also made a brunette version. So if you can get your hands on a brunette number one Barbie game over. I mean, like put your kids through college, like probably. Um, So that Barbie, she's very, you know, she's very slender. She is, you know, she's got boobs and a (laughs) tiny waist and these like little narrow hips. She also had these very arched eyebrows and red lipstick that was in fashion at the time. And her eyes are like looking kind of down into the side. She's got this like very demure uh, gaze. She's also not smiling. She looks very 1950s Hollywood glamour okay. star. Interesting. Um, so she was marketed as a teenage fashion model. Mm. And her clothing was designed by Mattel fashion designer Charlotte Johnson. So the doll was sold for around and her outfits ranged anywhere from a dollar to five dollars a piece okay um the idea being that you would buy a doll and then just buy a shit ton of outfits yeah that's kind of i mean that is genius mark i mean it's genius yeah when barbie was shown to a control group in 1958 because they like they took her they were like we're gonna do this thing and everybody was like this is weird it's a doll it's an adult it's got boobs like this is weird so Ruth got together, yeah, completely scandalized. Ruth got together with a psychiatrist and was like, let's do a control group. So they did this control group in 1958 and moms were like, she's too adult. Mm -hmm. She's clearly not a girl or a baby. She has boobs. She has too much of a figure. Uh I saw some sources that say that some of these moms were like, this is like borderline obscene. It's Uh pornographic. And Ruth said, quote, the whole idea was that a little girl could dream dreams of growing up and every adult she saw had breasts so like we're we're putting boobs on the doll right um the moms in this group this control group were also really uncomfortable with barbie because they saw her adult figure as competition for their husband's attention I mean, part of me wants to be like, <laughs> men aren't going to be that ridiculous. And they're like, no, they, they will. They're 100% that. They're going to be like, fucking look at this doll. <sighs> that doll is on. <laughs> so they're getting all this feedback that they're like, the doll is too adult. We can't have a doll with boobs. What's wrong with you? You got to change this. And Mattel is like, cool, 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 cool. 
yeah, hear everything that you're saying. And then they uh-huh. didn't change a damn thing except for how they advertised. Mattel uh-huh. went out and spent an insane amount of money to sponsor an entire season of the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm. Becoming the first toy company to broadcast commercials directly to kids. Wow. Yeah. So like really just like pioneers across the board. Yeah. And I had pulled it up, but I pulled it, stupidly pulled it up on my other computer. Um, Hold on. Pause. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. The commercial, here we go. Okay, I've got it pulled up. What I'm showing Scotty is the first ever Barbie commercial. And so, yeah, you'll see how they marketed it to little girls. Barbie, you're beautiful. You make me see. My Barbie doll is really real. Barbie's small and so petite. Her clothes and figure look so neat. Her dancing outfit rings the bell. At party she will cast a spell. Purses, hats, and gloves galore. And all the gadgets gals adore. Barbie dress for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie. Beautiful Barbie, I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel, it's swell. Okay. You can tell it's Mattel, it's swell. <laughs> it's swell. So do you want to just sort of like describe what you saw there so for the it listeners? Was, it starts with the, it's black and white, and mm-hmm. you see like a bunch of Barbies, and one of them's wearing a wedding dress. And the camera's and it's like, a, like, 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 a, like of, a fashion show kind of. Yeah, it's like the camera's right? like very like uh i don't even know i want to say sensuously but that's not right <laughs> but it's like lushly like kind of panning down the staircase where we see all these different barbies mm-hmm. the one on top wearing a wedding dress she's the brunette barbie by the way and mm-hmm. then you've got like barbie nightclub singer and blah 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 yes. and then it goes into like all the fashionable clothes you see like someone zipping up the dress from behind yeah and again then- that's the like japanese hand stitch tiny zippers Tiny, that's functional zippers. That's wild. Mm -hmm. And then it ends again on married wedding dress Barbie. Yeah. So interesting. That like that is interesting because I don't know. To me, it doesn't get away from the mom's concerns. Like you've got kind of sexy nightclub Barbie. You've got the zipping up the dress. Like Mm -hmm. it's interesting. Okay, to understand a little bit about like what's happening with Barbie and her like coming into the market, we need to talk a little bit about the nature of play. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about kids playing, it's a very important part of childhood development um, to like let kids play. And it's what they get from playtime is it lets kids learn about the rules and roles of society. Uh It's a way for kids to try on new identities, build empathy. It allows you as a kid into spaces you'd otherwise not be let into adult spaces. Right. right? So because when you're a kid and you're playing, you're never pretending that you're kids. A kid. You're pretending to be, you know, you're pretending to be like a cowboy. You're pretending to be an astronaut. You're pretending to be a 
soldier. You're pretending to be a mom. It's all of this stuff, right? So play lets kids learn social skills. It teaches them how to verbalize their feelings, et cetera. This is one of the very cool things that Trixie Mattel talks about on her video. Again, she's a drag queen. She won the third season of RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars. Okay. (laughs) She's also a musician. She's an entrepreneur. She has her own makeup line. And her and her partner, David, own the Trixie Motel in Palm Springs. This is a (laughs) motel. It was like an abandoned, somewhat decrepit, like kind of roadside motel in Palm Uh Springs. It has seven rooms. That's it. And they bought it during the pandemic and renovated it in this like Trixie Mattel style. So there's like a Queen of Heart suites. There's a Flamingo suite. The rooms are like incredible and luscious. And they documented all of the reno on this motel in a show called The Trixie Motel, which is airing on HBO Max. I am obsessed. I'm thinking road trip. Oh, 100% road trip. We could go there and then we could drive up to Nevada and check out the clown hotel. (laughs) I like, I am obsessed with this place. The lobby has a bar. All I want to do is have a bar, a drink at the Trixie Motel bar. She is fascinating. (laughs) Obsessed with her. So at any rate, one of the things that she said on her YouTube video is that dolls are, quote, tiny historical snapshots of cultural significance. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a doll from a time period, what you are seeing is what was referred like the toys reflect what children can aspire and relate to and also reflect to what actual women were doing at the time. Uh-huh. So like what jobs they had, what shoes they were wearing, how hair was being styled. Right. You can start to get into like social values and stuff like that. So with Mattel being like, cool, 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 cool heard on the notes about her body shape and then being like, and we're going to sponsor the Mickey Mouse Club for a year. They're just pumping Barbie commercials Mm -hmm. into the faces of these kids. And these kids are like, mom, I have to have a Barbie doll. So they just kind of overwhelmed the parents. They did. (laughs) They like, they didn't, they did a subversive override, right? Right. They were like, uh, uh, yeah, we'll get back to you. We hear you. And then. So what happens is the moms figured that they could use Barbie to impart their own goals and values. Mm -hmm. Barbies could, okay. So this was another thing that Trixie said in one of her videos is that she was like, at this time, the fear of most parents in America, and we're probably, we're talking about anybody who can buy a Barbie, right? Right. Like I'm sure there are people on other ends of the spectrum that were like, I don't give a fuck about Barbie. But for the people who would be looking, who would be being advertised to, their second- nuclear family kind of. Right. Their second worst fear was that their young child would be sexualized at too early of an age. Sure. Their first fear is that their daughter wouldn't know how to take care of herself in a manner that would get her a man. I mean, like, talk about mixed messages there. Uh, Yeah, like, what am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So these moms were like, okay, we can use Barbie to Mm -hmm. show my daughter how she needs to present herself, what she needs to do so that she can land a man and, you know, she can get the stable life of house, husband, and family. Mm -hmm. Mothers bought their daughters Barbie so that the girls could essentially use the toy as an avatar to figure out how to successfully be women. 
Mm-hmm. So because Mattel knew why parents were buying their daughters Barbies, they leaned into that idea and they kept a finger on the pulse of what Barbie needed to represent both to parents and to kids. Uh-huh. And then again, they're doing some kind of like subversive shit. I was going to say, that's it. like an interesting balancing act because yeah. the kids don't necessarily want to be what the parents want them to be. Yeah. You know? And so again, up until Barbie, we have toys that are teaching kids how to be mom, but Barbie started to teach girls that they could be anything. Mm-hmm. She comes out, you know, she enters the scene. She's in this little swimsuit. She's a professional fashion model. Mm-hmm. She makes a living. She isn't married, uh-huh. you know, and all of this stuff. There's also a lot of really interesting information out there about what they call transgressive play with Barbies and other dolls at the time. And this is stuff like making your Barbie and your G.I. Joe like make out uh-huh. what they call Barbie mutilation, <laughs> which is like mm-hmm. cutting her hair, popping her head off, that kind of stuff that like all of that stuff is actually like really, really important to childhood development. Yeah. I remember just a little sidebar of this. I don't know if this was was like a 90s thing but there was definitely a thing of like the grungy alternative girls in my high school because i can think of like at least three of them who had barbie dolls hanging from their backpacks mm-hmm. from like a noose mm-hmm. like that was definitely a, a thing for a while yeah it's also very funny again if you have seen any of the marketing for the barbie movie you know that their kate mckinnon plays a barbie she's got a star i think or a circle mm-hmm. drawn around one eye and she's got like squiggles uh-huh. um and she's the barbie that's always in the splits she is a barbie mutilation barbie interesting her hair if you look at her her hair is like chopped she's i didn't pick that up but that's interesting she's a barbie mutilation barbie Yeah. Which is just like, again, the attention to detail to the lore is pretty mm-hmm. exciting. I used to throw my Star Wars figures down the garbage disposal because I was pretending it was the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> Would you turn it on? Sure. Yeah, of course. Sure. Why not? Um, okay. This I next mean, bit. If I had <laughs> saved the Star Wars figures, that would have been it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, how can you buy a doll and not like play with it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So this next bit is from the Not Over It podcast. It says, quote, Barbie showed kids how to explore their fantasies and showed adults what they'd been silently propping up as femininity. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's it is like they Mattel walked this tightrope. Oh yeah. With Barbie. It is interesting like, how like from the jump there was like some real subversion there. Yeah, yeah. They like a little subversively, Barbie was teaching girls how to like aspire to be anything. Right. You know, which is like really cool. Additionally, Barbie has mirrored societal progress now for over mm-hmm. 60 years. Whatever mm-hmm. is being reflected in Barbie dolls is what is happening in the world. Right. So let's get to a little bit of the evolution. The early 1960s. Barbies were stuff like suburban shopper Barbie. And she mm-hmm. is very season one and two Mad Men Betty Draper. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and uh another one was barbecue Barbie, you know, and she's like in her little like gingham, mm, uh, like yeah. barbecue dress, you know. Mm-hmm. Again, the OG Barbies had beautiful clothing, like stunning clothing. By the way, Ken was introduced in 1961 as an accessory to Barbie. Mm -hmm. Again, with the marketing with the Barbie movie, it's why you see Barbie, she's everything, and Ken (laughs) as he's just Ken. Yeah. I love all the different memes uh, with that now. (laughs) They're fantastic. Um, The memes are fantastic. (laughs) But it was really like Ken was really there to 
only be in service to Barbie. Right. It was never like, I'm sure he had careers, but he was never the central figure no. Barbie was. Right. She also eventually gets friends. Um <sighs> Okay, I'm going to use a word here that we no longer use. This is not my word. This is actually how this doll was named. But she gets friends like Colored Francie. Mm, yeah. yeah, we'll come back to that in a okay. bit. Uh, the OG Barbies had really limited mobility. They had the ugh, that like super satisfying sound. Their knees would like, you know, mm -hmm. like click and maybe a little bit of dorsal movement at the waist, right? Like uh -huh. they could bend forward and then straighten up a little bit. Mm -hmm. In the early 1960s, Twist and Turn Barbie was released and she had an axle waist so that she could do the twist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. From there on out, Barbie's movement progresses. Again, this is a quote from Trixie Mattel. She says, quote, as women got more freedom in the world, Barbie got more movement in her body. And it's okay. true. Yeah. Like as the decades are progressing, it's stuff where like Barbie can actually walk and like her head turns, her joints start to move. Right. Um, super cool. As we move into the 1970s, what we see with Barbie is, well, we get Malibu Barbie. Mm -hmm. And this is the first Barbie that starts to move away from the aspirational, like, oh, this is what my mom looks like, uh -huh. into this is what I look like. Interesting. So okay. Malibu Barbie, gone are the very, like, quaffed dolls with, like, obvious makeup and traditional feminine clothing. Uh -huh. um, Malibu Barbie is really this, like, California girl, Marsha Brady Barbie, mm -hmm. long, straight hair. She's got this bitchin' tan, almost no makeup at all. Yeah, kind of like um, surfer girl, kind of. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Malibu Barbie was like two bad nights at the Whiskey A Go Go from becoming a Manson <laughs> chick. Like, that's that's the vibe. <laughs> Right? Like oh, that's that, that that's the vibe. <laughs> so much. When you look at her though, you're like, yeah, she's yeah, like no, one bad right. quaalude from like <laughs> going off the deep end. Um so <laughs> So that's like where where we're going with her. Additionally, and this is probably the most important thing about Malibu Barbie, is that for the first time, she is the Barbie who is no longer looking to the side. She's looking straight out at the world. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Because in that commercial, they're all like given side eyes. They're all like, it is very like, and again, through the 1960s, like they started to smile a little bit more, but it was very much this like demure, mm -hmm. you know, walking that fine line of like, come hither, but also like, I'm a good girl type yeah. of thing. And again, with Malibu Barbie, eyes to the world, she's looking right. out, she knows who she is. Malibu Barbie is the biggest selling Barbie to date. There are so many of her out there that you can get a near mint condition Malibu Barbie in original packaging for less than a hundred dollars. Mm, okay. Yeah. So they're wow. everywhere. Did I say I mean, that? I feel like that's the first Barbie I remember. Yeah. Kind of the because that was still like a thing in the 80s, I think. Yeah, she's the biggest selling Barbie to date. Little fun fact here there are more Barbie dolls in the world than there are people. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think Barbies outnumber people three to one. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as we move into the late 70s, we go from, you know, California girl, Marsha Brady to 
superstar Barbie. And she is giving disco. She is giving Studio okay. 54. She's also the first Barbie whose arms can bend so she can like bust do a some, move. Yeah, do some disco dancing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trixie said that superstar Barbie is a drag queen. <laughs> I her, mean, yeah, kind of. Her head is like a little bit too small and she's got this like big like mm-hmm. blonde hair and she's wearing this like pink gown. She's got this mm-hmm. pink bush. She's a drag queen. <laughs> She's a drag queen. In the 1980s, we get the first actual black Barbie. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned, Francie was released in 1967, but it was clear that it was a Barbie that they colored mm-hmm. darker. Um, right. Same Eurocentric features. Right. Um, and then we got Christine, who was the first actual black doll in the Barbie line. She was released in 68 in response to the civil rights movement. Okay. But in 1980, we got the first African-American doll named Barbie. Okay. So that's the distinction there. She wasn't Barbie's best friend. She was Barbie. Um, Black Barbie is stunning. She's got this Mm. like afro. She's wearing this like red dress. It's like a cold shoulder. She's got jewelry. I remember that. Yeah. Stunning, stunning. Her box says she's black. She's beautiful. She's dynamite. She's pretty cool. The 1980s also see a real push to make Barbie corporate. So you get day to night Barbie, which is like she's wearing a suit. She has a little suitcase that has like a calculator and a credit card and a newspaper that says business, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and all this stuff. But her outfit also transforms to like a going out outfit. Okay. So like you can take the skirt off, turn it inside out. It's like pink, like metallic lame. So this is sort of like third wave feminism, Barbie. Very much so. Yeah. She's a she is a working girl. The 1980s also see Barbie and the Rockers. Mm. I'm gonna give you a little. I'm gonna give you a little bit of tea about this. Okay. <laughs> so Barbie got word that Gem, Gem and the Holograms, mm-hmm. that a Gem doll was being released. And so they were like, uh-uh. So they got cranking and they got Barbie and the Rockers mm-hmm. from idea to shelves in nine months. This is a process wow. that usually takes 16 months. Yeah. Okay. And they were like, get that rocking bitch out there. Um, <laughs> so when Jem was released, it looked like Jem had copied Barbie when it was actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a little underhanded. I mean, that that's common. <laughs> yeah, I still had a gem doll though. Yeah. And like she was like a bit, I think she was like a bit bigger than Barbie. So I would like put Barbie in gems like silver glitter boots and they were like, they were like high, <laughs> high boots. Ridiculous. Yeah, I kind of remember the gem dolls, but I yeah. do remember Barbie and the Rockers. I had a, and I, I think she was probably like a Valentine's Day Barbie. And she was in this beautiful, I think, white dress with red hearts on it. And I loved her because she had little white underwear that had one little red heart on Mm. them. And I was just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, to speak to this, I was like, I cannot wait until I am an adult and I can wear white underwear with red hearts. (laughs) 
And meanwhile, I'm throwing Luke Skywalker down. A yeah, boat. down. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, okay. So then we get to the 90s, right? We get to the uh, 90s. And this is when we start to see the first Barbies collectors market. These were people who had played with Barbies as kids and were now adults. <laughs> so they were looking to collect the dolls. Mm -hmm. This is also when we get the Silkstone Barbies. Okay, so the original Barbies were made, I think, out of this stuff called Silkstone. They were heavy. Like, if you find an original Barbie number one, she's heavy. And it's okay. because she's made out of the Silkstone. And it is a thing that feels like a combination of plastic and ceramic. Okay. She's got a different, like, feel to her. Right. Um, this is also when we get the Bob Mackie Barbies. So Bob Mackie is designing, like, the outfits for her. These, like, crazy mm. shares worn a lot of Bob Mackie at the Oscars. And we also get other designers designing specifically for Barbie. Again, a big draw about her is that all of the Barbies were shaped exactly the same. This will come back to bite them a little bit in the ass mm -hmm. later. They're all shaped exactly the same. So you could, all of the clothing was interchangeable. Another like interesting marketing thing is that they usually came very simply dressed. Malibu Barbie is in a little blue swimsuit. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, and now you buy all of the clothing for her. Mm -hmm. Late 90s to like early 2000s, Barbie gets real normal. She's real relatable. Like um, Normcore Barbie, kind of. Yeah. And it is really, really, really more about what she does and less about what she looked like. Barbie has run for president six times. Okay. Um, so like this is when you're starting to get this kind of stuff. Sure. Um, the Barbies that are coming out now, they're really fun again. They're very into fashion. It is very gen- Z, lots of like pink, mm -hmm. fuzzy crop top jackets and like mm -hmm. high-waisted jeans. <laughs> it's fun. It's funky. So let's dip into the cultural and societal significance of Barbie. This is fascinating to me, especially like during the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Doll designers were going to Italy to watch designers shows Mm -hmm. coming back and designing Barbie's clothes so that when Italian fashion hit U.S. shore markets a year later, Barbie would be wearing that clothing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's okay. just, yeah. like, she is of the moment. Right. Um, okay, so in 1967, we see Twiggy become the first celebrity to be immortalized in Barbie form. Since okay. then, we have seen, I mean, the list is long because not mm. only was there like celebrity ones like Twiggy, I think through, I think in the 90s, they started their like inspirational. So you've got Cher, Elizabeth Taylor, Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, Tina Turner, Jane Goodall, Laverne. Cox, wow, Naomi okay. Osaka, Elton John, Jennifer Lopez. They're yeah. really starting to be like, hey, this is very, very inclusive, right? Yeah. Inclusive. So some criticisms about Barbie. One is that she promotes an unrealistic body right. expectation. If Barbie was real, she'd be around 5'9", and her measurements would be 39'18". 33. Yeah. And she would wear a size three shoe. <laughs> I mean, wasn't there someone, you may be going to talk about this, but there was like some model or something who was doing all sorts of crazy plastic surgery to look like Barbie. There have been a couple. Yeah. Um, there uh, have been a couple people who, I think it's actually called Barbie syndrome. Mm. 
And it the interesting thing about it, one of the models that I saw has had extensive plastic surgery to look like Barbie. And the thing is, is that now I think what she actually looks like is she looks a little bit like an anime girl. Like mm-hmm. she's got the sort of like, you know, yeah, like- I think that's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Barbie has always had this, I mean, I think once we got past the 1960s, I, pretty much I think when we started with Malibu Barbie, she's had this very like open, very warm mm-hmm. face. And so, yeah, yeah this girl, she, she kind of looks like an anime anime girl um there's also a couple of guys who have been like human ken dolls which is also weird because i mean ken's pretty ken's pretty basic but <laughs> no shame i mean ken's um, just ken look ken is just ken um okay so <laughs> size three shoe from the scale that came with it's a i think it was like babysit barbie um we know that her weight is always 110 pounds Okay. So again, five, you've nine, got five nine, yeah. 110 pounds, okay. 18 inch waist, 39 inch bust. Wow. She's a mess. It defies um, physics. Yeah. People have said that if Barbie was a real human, she wouldn't menstruate because she'd have a BMI of under 17, which 17 is like the minimum that you have to have mm, okay. for, for menstruation. I also saw some other things that were like, she would have to walk on all fours. <laughs> Now I picture just some weird like alien Barbie creature. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Around 2016, Mattel released curvy, petite, and tall Barbies, as well as the Fashionista line, which represents a wide range of skin tones of different ethnicities. Uh-huh. The BBC took a look at what the curvy, petite, and tall Barbies would look like if they were real. Curvy Barbie would be 5'6", and she would have a size 2 to 4 waist. Okay. And a size four hips. Okay. Tall Barbie would be 5'11", and she would have a size zero waist and a size double zero hips. Okay. That's like well, Slender pe- Man Barbie. Kind of. <laughs> Slender Man Barbie. <laughs> While Petite Barbie would be 4'11", have a double zero waist and uh, like a child's medium hips. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, I mean, we're still not in the realm of reality yet. Right. And it's interesting to see it because there is Mattel has kind of been like, she's not supposed to be realistic. Mm -hmm. Like she is supposed to be this like fantasy avatar. And so in like one way, I understand that also in another way, it's like we know that like seeing yourself represented matters. Right. Okay. So that Barbie that came with a scale, she also came with a book called How to Lose Weight. And the only instruction in the book was don't eat um <laughs> uh, Ooh, in, yeah in 1997 her waist was redesigned you know they made it a little bit wider and mattel said that this would make the doll better suited to contemporary fashion designs mm-hmm. which makes sense like a snatched waist was really big in the 50s and 60s right you know uh another criticism that's been lobbed is a lack of diversity she stumbled yeah on the diversity front um like Literally everybody else. I know. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, the fact that they were releasing a black doll in response to the civil rights movement. Again, I think this is the thing that like Mattel was constantly watching what was going on mm-hmm. and and trying to well, keep up with like the changing. I mean, you definitely tides. can be critical of what was it, colored Francine or mm-hmm. colored Francie or whatever. And and the idea that like, you know, Barbie is going to be white and then the best friend is going to be black. Mm-hmm. But if you think about like the time period, the idea of a white girl having a black best friend was actually groundbreaking Pretty- in its own way. So it's yes. like 
an imperfect step forward, but maybe a step forward. And I think, yeah, I think that's the thing is that like, uh, this is not to be like, everybody should leave Barbie alone. Yeah. It's not that, but it's just like, they were, you know. They were trying. They were, doing, I mean, they were trying. Then they were doing a lot ways, more than I think a lot of other toy companies were. I was going to say, like, in most ways, it does seem like they were at least trying to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah. And I think an interesting thing, too, is that, like, the Barbies of different ethnicities were always, like, just as beautiful. They were just right. as glamorous. They were, you know, they're it, it. And that is that actually that's an important point, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, the 1980s also saw the release of Hispanic dolls and other dolls from across the globe, but it was like a pretty generic uh-huh. ambiguous representation of like I would be willing to bet that the Hispanic she's probably like a Spanish, she's probably like a fucking flamenco dancer or Barbie, right, yeah, you know what I mean. Uh-huh. The brand has recently shifted towards more assertive Latinx representation in their dolls. <laughs> this was a misstep. Um Uh-oh. in 1979, Mattel and Nabisco got together to cross promote with their Oreo Barbie. There was definitely a white version of the Oreo Barbie, but uh-huh. there was also a black version. Uh, um, yes. I mean, just every cell in my body just cringed. Yes. So if you don't understand why that is problematic, to call a black person an Oreo means that you are calling them black on the inside and white on no, sorry, black on the outside, white on the inside. Right. It is like a derogatory term and basically used to like accuse people of like assimilating, right? Right. So as soon as they figured it out, they recalled the unsold stock. Sidebar, mm. a black Oreo Barbie is now very sought after by collectors. I would imagine because it's got to be super rare. Right. What this says to me is that at this time, there were no black people working on the designs of Barbies, nor did any of For the people sure. <laughs> who worked on the designs of yeah. Barbie, like, know any black people. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. Yeah, which is absolutely a problem. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's one of those things that it's just like anybody with any type of social awareness of being black in America would have seen a black Barbie that said black Oreo Barbie and would have been like, no, you can't. Yeah, you got to make her like the fucking Trisket Barbie or something. You got to do, you got to pick something else. So there's that. It wasn't until 1997 that we saw the first Barbie. Barbie doll in a wheelchair. Um, Mm. She was called Share a Smile Becky. And a 17-year-old high school student with cerebral palsy was like, you know Becky's wheelchair won't fit in the elevator in Barbie's dream house. Mm, Oops. Yeah. And so Mattel was like, heard. And they went back to the drawing board and they redesigned the house to accommodate Becky's wheelchair. Again, it seems like, you know, there are missteps here and there, but consistently trying to be on the right side of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Barbie's bad influence. Talking (laughs) Barbies were always saying shit like, help me fix my hair or like, let's go to dinner. In 1992, (laughs) Mattel released Teen Talk Barbie and she said shit like, will we ever have enough clothes? Or I love shopping or want to have a pizza party. I like this Barbie because she's she eats, you know, I don't know how she stays at 110 pounds, but she's always like, can we get some fucking food? I mean, Um, Go hang out with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, that seems like For a real? match made yeah. yeah, Match made in <laughs> heaven. Um, so there were 270 possible phrases for Teen Talk Barbie. Each doll would say 
four. And one of these 270 phrases was math class is tough, Mm. which got turned into math is hard by the grapevine. Like people were Mm -hmm. like, there's a Barbie that says math is hard, but Uh also like math is hard, bitch. Like I don't, it's hard. (laughs) I I can't do math. I've talked about it. No, uh, math is hard and it's okay to say like, sometimes math is hard. I get it. I get what they're doing with that, that they, you know, they don't want to be like, oh, all math is hard for all. It's hard for me. Okay. I'm a girl and math is hard for me. (laughs) I'm not ashamed anymore. In 2022, Barbie's friend Midge got knocked up. She's part of the happy family line. So she was in fact married, but everyone thought that she was a teen mom. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I remember it was like pop, like news alerts popping up on my phone about it. And I was just like, oh, okay. I can't. I, I can't, can't be bothered. There's I too many things to be angry about. This is not going to be one of them. Yes. Yeah. Trixie has all of these like doll videos. Like she's going through all of her dolls. And I am not remembering the woman's name, but she is, this is important. The reason I'm going to say this is important because it comes up in a bit. She is a trans woman. She's a performer. Oh, I think it's like something Lador, Lamore, something. And yeah. she basically, she has like, what is essentially a Barbie doll made of her. Mm. She has not she has a little vagina. Mm. <laughs> Saucy. And yeah. I was like, she was talking about it and she, you know, Trixie like lifts up the dress, but of course it's blurred out. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I have to see this. So I went okay. and I looked at pictures and she has she's got okay. a little teeny tiny vagina. Okay. This is clearly a doll that is not made for children. It is yeah. made for collectors and fans right. of this this particular right. performer. Right. Don't get your panties in a twist. Okay. An original 1959 number one Barbie was recently sold for $27,450. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think my mo- my mom had an old Barbie that I was not allowed to play with. Uh, I don't know if it was like an original, but my mom would have been the age where, because it was like one of her childhood toys. Mm. So it was probably like, if not like a number one, it was like way back in time. And unfortunately, so, burned in the fire. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to tell you to go look at it. So here is the thing, because you can also get Barbie number threes, and they look exactly like the Barbie number ones with some mm-hmm. some little differences. Original Barbie number ones have holes in their feet because they came with a little stand, and the stand had two posts that came out of it, so you could stick her on there, okay. and the posts would like hold her feet. Her shoes also have holes, so that's that's the big marker of how you know that you have an original number okay. one Barbie. Yeah, I sure don't remember. <laughs> yeah, that one, but... that one is also cool. She came with earrings that were like these little hoops, and they were on posts that you just like into her like Frankenstein jaw. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and apparently, it's a whole thing that like collectors know that you have to remove the earrings because otherwise, you can get the ears will turn green, oh, and so then it'll devalue your doll. Okay. It's, I learned a lot about doll collecting <laughs> watching these videos, and it is yeah. fascinating. So original Barbie number ones are pretty rare. They are valued at around $8,000, but a mint condition one like this one can go for over $20,000. Yeah. The most expensive Barbie yet 
It's only the year of our Lord, 2023. But the most expensive Barbie yet is the Stefano Canturi Barbie. It was released in 2010. She is valued at $302,500. Wow. Um, designer Stefano Canturi designed, she's like, I think she's wearing like a black strapless dress and she's got this big kind of like collar necklace on. The necklace is made from emerald cut Australian pink diamonds. Wow. Each stone is one carat and is surrounded by three carats of white diamonds. Wow. It was auctioned off, but this doll was actually created and sold to raise money for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Okay. So it was a charity doll. Right. Um, And this is interesting because in the 1970s, Barbie's creator, Ruth, was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had a radical mastectomy. Mm. Um, She actually actually went out and launched a company to manufacture silicone and foam prosthetic boobs and bras for women with breast cancer. Mm. She was like, yo, Mattel designers, come on. <laughs> right. I need you to figure out like how to make a boob. Yeah, for we've, me. we've already got some experience with this. Let's. Yeah. yeah. This company, uh, Ruthton Corp, another portmanteau of like two names, Ruth and her partner, whose like last name was like Patton or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They released this more realistic breast prosthetic called Nearly Me. And then First Lady Betty Ford was personally fitted for one when she had breast cancer. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. There is a fantastic picture of Ruth. She's like in her office. She's, you know, in the 1970s. She's got her Uh little blouse. She's got a little scarf tied on. And she has opened up her shirt and she (laughs) is showing this mastectomy bra. Okay. And she's just like... It's fantastic. Unfortunately, in 1974, Ruth resigned from Mattel, and in 1978, she was charged with fraud and false financial reporting to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Mm. She passed away from complications of surgery for colon cancer on April 27, 2008. She was 85 years old. Her husband, Elliot, passed away nine years later. He was 95. Barbie continues to be one of the most popular dolls in the world. Her sales amount to more than a billion dollars every year. Uh, Mattel estimates that every second, two Barbies are sold somewhere in the world, which is not too bad for a gal from Wisconsin. And that is the history of one of the most iconic toys ever produced. It's funny because like being a boy who mostly played with boy toys, um, there was a part of me that always, I think was like a little jealous of the Barbie dolls because they were so... Like, there was something that appealing about the, like, the adaptability of Barbie. Yes. Like, like, there was, you know, because if you have your, like, G.I. Joe, like, Joe or He-Man or, you know, they'll have these, like, very defined they're very personalities. Stat- yeah, they're, like, very, very static. static. And there mm-hmm. was something about, because I, I feel like the My Little Ponies were a little bit like this, too, where, like, there was a mix and match quality to Barbie. And, like, you could kind of put a lot of your own personality. Like, you could project a lot of yourself into Barbie and that was something the boys toys just didn't do yeah and there like it was so interesting to see one of the barbies that i think was released i think in the 1960s had this very um had like she was again wearing a swimsuit a fabulous i the the, like Mm. the original barbie clothing is so beautiful but she was wearing this like head wrap that was very much inspired by elizabeth taylor's cleopatra Mm, interesting 
And they hadn't yet figured out that hair play was a very big part of playing with a Barbie. Mm -hmm. And so they gave her wigs, like you could buy her wigs, but people like kids were like, I don't want that. I don't. Yeah. I want to. So then in the eighties, they also had the Barbie and I don't remember what her name is, but she had like long, like crystal Gale hair. I remember that. Brush it and braid it. And I think I had one of those. I remember um, I remember girls in uh, like elementary school having those. I also had Barbie's dream house and one I like I I can't even. I remember getting this and being like nobody can say shit to me anymore because <laughs> She had she had a hot tub. And so you would fill the little hot tub with water. And then there was a button that you would press that would basically make the bubbles in the hot tub. And I was, I was like, nobody can say shit to me anymore. I fucking have the Barbie dream house with a fucking hot tub. I am number don't nobody can look at me. I felt like such hot shit. The boys were all about that with like who had the Castle Gray skull set and stuff. Like if you could get the Castle Gray skull set, you were like the like the shit. Yeah, it is like, I again, there's a book called Forever Barbie, which I looked it up. I was like, maybe I can get it in like, you know, Kindle or something. It only exists in hard copy in hardback and paperback. Mm-hmm. And the hardcover is like a thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, well, okay, I guess I won't read it then. <laughs> but it goes deep into the history and like the cultural significance of Barbie. Uh-huh. Um And I think that was what, like, I was like, oh, okay, I'll talk about Barbie. And then when I started to dig into it, I was like, this is fascinating that she has been this mirror to society and that Mattel allowed her to like reflect what society was showing, but also like get under that in this really kind of subversive Mm -hmm. way to be like, we know that like, this is what your parents want you to see, but also like, she can be anything you want her to be. Right. Right. Like have at it, dream big. Well, and at the time period the Barbie came out, that was like a quote unquote like dangerous idea because it yeah, was, was like when rock and roll was like starting. And yeah, I mean, again, Beatlemania have, was just a few years away. Yeah, and, to have a doll who was a professional mm-hmm. who wasn't married, you know, and it's interesting. Like you can get into the history of like Barbie and Ken; they broke up um, for a <laughs> while. There's like, which I think is probably going to be part of the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, she had a thing with. Like this, like Australian bodyboarder or whatever. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And she's got all this stuff. So that's why I think one of the reasons I wanted to look into this is because there are some dudes out there who are like, why is Barbie everything and Ken's just Ken? And -hmm. somebody was like, you don't understand the lore. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, also, like, wait, what is the lore? And that's what like got me to dive into this topic. Yeah. Also, though, are you really mad about that? Also, like, not everything has to be (laughs) for everybody. Like, like seriously, like, pick your fucking battles. Like, that's not a thing to be upset about. (laughs) It's just so. These these are these are the people we've been talking about the last few weeks who are also downvoting Star Wars movies. Yes, this is the stuff where it's, and I, I like I get it right. Like, if you have spent your entire existence being centered then not being centered feels like discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that it's not, it's just that out of the 1200 things that are made with you (laughs) as the central focus, here is one thing that is made for somebody who is not you. Right. And it's a very interesting tell to be like, you can't have anything that isn't about me. Mm-hmm. I'm the center of the universe. Everything ha- like I have to be able to intimately relate to everything. And right. these are the these are the people who get well, mad that there is now a black little mermaid 
and all this stuff. And I'm just like, you you can literally go to the decades long history of other shit that is solely for you. Did you see the thing? This is like a side story, but it's somewhat related of the some right wing woman who's clearly trying to be Candace Owens is all mad is like real deep in her feels about Mm -hmm. the new Super Mario Brothers movie because Princess Peach, they've made too strong. She's not helpless enough. And so this is convincing women to be little girls to be feminists, which is then going to convince them to like think that they're men and they're going to go out and get like this is literally like her video said this you know what bitch hand your girl a barbie yeah (laughs) hand your girl a barbie (laughs) like i mean it was but it was literally it was just like what the fuck are you talking about and also and someone posted online they're like oh she's gonna be real mad about super mario brothers 2 and it showed like the little 16-bit thing of like princess peach on her little motorcycle or whatever it's like it's like it's like when people post stuff like i'm like i don't even believe that you believe what you're saying like, I actually I, think you're just trying to get yes. clips or whatever. I think that that's 100% the thing. I also think, I know I've said it to my brother. I feel like I've said it to you. I might have said it on this podcast. But if the only thing that you can find to get your panties in a twist about is the fact that Princess Peach is a strong, you know, she fights royal back. character, um, that Bud Light is putting out a pride beer. Like if that's the only thing that you have in your life to get upset about, if that's the only thing wrong in your life, how blessed you must be, mm-hmm. how easy your life must be mm-hmm. that these are the things that interrupt your ability to wander through the world as a happy human being. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and and I'm sorry, Satan has made a, ho- a home in your heart. Like, that's the only <laughs> thing I have to say to those people. Yeah. All right. On that note, <laughs> let's leave it. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that that was a good little palate cleanser. And, you know, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks with some new weird stories. And until then, stay weird, stay curious. And you know what? We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.